Um, so, would you turn your Bibles, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. Now, if you are newer to your Bible, um, if you open up to the middle of your Bible, chances are you might hit Psalm 119. The reason is Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible, and Psalms is the longest book in the Bible, and Psalms is about in the middle of your Bible, so you've, you've, got, you've got a lot of... Uh, a lot of helps along the way to find Psalm 119. As you turn there, I just want to give you a little bit of background on this remarkable chapter of God's Word. Uh, it was originally written in 22 different stanzas. And many of you probably know this, but it's, it bears worth repeating. It's worth repeating. 22 different stanzas of eight lines each. Each of these, 22 is not just a random number that, that the writer just picked out. Uh, 22 is the number of letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And so each of these eight-line stanzas start with one of the letters from the Hebrew alphabet, and it goes all the way through from A to Z. Not in the Hebrew alphabet, but you get the idea. And so the first eight, eight lines of Psalm 119 all start with Aleph, which is the first letter. And then next eight lines are, start with Bet, which is the second letter, and it goes on, Gimel, and just keeps going. All the Hebrew, Hebrew letters. Now, an acrostic, that's what this is, uh, is not just, just because he was bored. Uh, the writer of Psalm 119 structured this psalm in this way because he wanted to make it easy for people to remember, easier for people to know this truth, to hide this truth in their hearts, to meditate on it. And an acrostic is a helpful device uh, to be able to do that. Um, it's also beautiful in, in the, what the psalmist does. God's word is not, God is not willy-nilly in how he gives us his word. Uh, he's very intentional, and it shows his thoughtful and good design behind his word. So that's Psalm 119, and we are going to not be looking at 176 verses. We're going to be looking at eight verses, the first eight. And uh, let us read God's word together. I'll read Psalm 119, verses 1 through 8. This is the word of God. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. Father, as we look to your word together this morning, may you speak to us. May you transform our lives. Where we are blind, help us to see. Where we are walking in error, help us to make straight our paths. Where we are discouraged, may we be encouraged. Lord, give us eyes to see you, to see your glory as you've spoken to us through your word. And give me grace as I preach. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to begin by asking a question. What is the key to happiness? The key to happiness. I want to begin by telling you about a lady named Paula Francis. Paula Francis, she's a woman from Vermont who's been traveling the U.S. over the last few years seeking to answer this question. What's the key to happiness? So far, she has walked 6,700 miles through 23 states. And the purpose of her walk is to gather data for an organization called Gross National Happiness. So as opposed to GDP, it's GNH, Gross National Happiness. 
And this is an organization whose mission, self-declared mission, is to increase personal happiness and our collective well-being by changing how we measure progress and success. She wants to know what the key to happiness is, understood by the common American. She's walking around this country trying to quantitatively define the good life by asking random strangers one question. Their question is this, what matters most in life? In a recent interview, she described how often people start crying when asked to consider this question as they reflect on what really matters, what's really important to them. She's on a mission to discover the key to American happiness. It's Paula, Paula Francis. Let me give you another example. Uh, you might have heard about this this past February, I think February 1st or something like that. New York Times did an article on the most popular class that Yale University has ever held. And the most popular class in Yale's history was held this past spring and over a quarter of all their undergraduate students took this class. It was held in like their concert hall. It's about 1,200 people. The class was called Psychology and the Good Life. And the purpose of this class, in the words of its professor, is, quote, to teach students how to lead a happier, more satisfying life in twice-weekly lectures. That's all it takes. Lead a happier, more satisfying life in twice-weekly lectures. In the class, she discusses things like showing gratitude, not procrastinating, and increasing social connections. If you want to be happy, these are the things that you will do. This Yale class and Paula Francis's walk, they reveal something that's universally true about humanity. And that's this. We all want to be happy. We all want to be happy. You see, everybody wants to be happy. Everyone has a desire to live the good life, live the blessed life, the happy life. Augustine in the 5th century said it this way. He said that all men desire happiness is a truism for all who are in any degree able to use their reason. He's saying anybody who has a brain pursues happiness. That, that is what is true for their life. They desire happiness. But the challenge is that there are so many different ideas about, out there about what the good life, the blessed life really is. And more than that, what this Yale class shows and what Paula Francis is going to find is that any attempt to achieve happiness that aims at happiness is going to fall short. It's going to miss the mark. We aren't going to be happy by aiming at happy. Humanity has a hardwired longing for living the good life. Every person is made searching for something that will satisfy. And most of us spend all our time looking in all the wrong places. Now the truth for all humanity, it's a hard truth, but a good truth. And it's this. This is the hard truth. There's only one path to the good life. That's a hard truth. There's only one, one path to the good life. But the good in that truth is that it's available to anyone. And it's revealed to us in the pages of this book. At the very heart of Christianity shown to us in Scripture is this idea of the good life. Scripture points us again and again to the reality that the desires of, God, of the people of God are fulfilled in God. The desires of the people of God are fulfilled in God. This is the good life. And if you didn't realize it, we actually sang this earlier. We said, true delight is found in you alone. These were words that came out of your mouth a few moments ago. True delight is found in you alone. You can just look at scriptures and you see how scripture teaches this truth. For example, in Psalm 1611, we read this. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. Fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures 
forevermore. Or David writes in Psalm 37, he says this, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Do you want the desires of your heart? Delight yourself in the Lord. So here's this idea in the Old Testament, the good life, the blessed life is found in God. But it's also all over the New Testament too. It's not just something that's in the Old Testament. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, He teaches that blessedness, or true happiness as John Calvin says, is found in His kingdom. That's the whole Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. Blessed are those. Happy are those. Flourishing are those. In John 10.10, Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus came to give His followers abundant, full life. Near the end of His earthly ministry, Jesus tells His disciples in John 15.11, He says this, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Jesus speaks all these things that your joy may be full, that His joy may be in us. The joy of Jesus is meant to fill His people. But that's not where it ends. How the Bible talks about good life, joy, happiness found in God. Jesus' disciples spoke this way as well. Paul writes in Philippians 4.4 that we are to rejoice in the Lord always. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1.8 that believing in Jesus leads to rejoicing with joy that is inexpressible. John writes to a church he cares for in 1 John 1.4. He says, he writes so that our joy may be complete. The Christian life that the Bible talks about is the happy life. It's the good life. It's the blessed life. It is eternal life. And as we've seen in the exodus of Israel from Egypt, God didn't just save His people to save them. He saved His people to shape them. He saved His people to teach them. That's why He revealed Himself to them. That's why He reveals Himself to us in His Word. Through His law, through His presence. God wants His people to know how to live the good life. Do you want in on this? Don't you want in on this? Here's the incredible reality of God's goodness. Anyone can get in on this. Anyone can get in on this. Anyone. And it's this idea of the good life that is what the psalmist in Psalm 119 has in mind. When we turn to Psalm 119, we see an extended exposition of these ideas. Psalm 119 shows us the way to the good life as we long for the way. Shows us the way to the good life as we long for the way. We're going to look at this text, verses 1 through 8, under these two headings. The way to the good life and longing for the way. The first, the way to the good life. We're going to look at verses 1 through 3 here, which describes to us the way to the good life. One thing you'll notice again and again in Psalm 119 are the many ways that God's Word is described. Just even as we look at these first three verses, we see three different examples, three different ways that God's Word is talked about. In verse 1, we see God's Word referred to as the law of the Lord. Then in verse 2, we see His testimonies. God's Word is described as His testimonies. In verse 3, we see God's Word described as His ways at the end of the verse. We walk in His ways. His ways is another word for God's Word. This is a pattern that, that carries all the way through Psalm 119. Believe it or not, but in the... Actually, you should believe it because it's true. Don't believe it or not. In the 176 verses of Psalm 119, at least 171 of them refer to God's Word using one of eight different words. Now, the other five, they may refer to God's Word. There's kind of debate, but they use different, two different words. 
Jewish tradition holds that there are 10 different synonyms used for God's word throughout Psalm 119. And the reason there's 10 is because there's 10 commandments, the 10 words of God. There's no denying that there are eight synonyms that are, that are definitely used for God's word throughout Psalm 119. And for the most part, almost across the board, those eight different words come up in every stanza. So eight, 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 uh, 22 stanzas of eight lines each, and there's eight different words used for God's word. It's pretty much all the way through Psalm 119. Not entirely, but that's generally true. And the reason that there's all these different words used to describe the word of God is because God's word is rich. God's word is all-encompassing for God's people. 2 Timothy 3.17 describes it this way, that we are given God's word in order to be complete and equipped for every every good work. So God's word gives us all that we need. And so just in the language that Psalm 119 uses, it's seeking to put this on display, the multifaceted nature of God's word. God's word is like a diamond that you pick up and you look at and the light shines through it one way and you see different reflections and you turn it the other way and you see something else. That's how God's word is. It is, you can't plumb the depths of it. I'm mean, talking to my kids about this a lot as we read God's word. It's just, the more I study God's word, the more I realize there's a lot that I don't know. Uh, there's a lot more to be learned. And that's not like a, a cry of despair. That's a cry of joy. Like I can't reach the bottom of it. It's so rich. Psalm 119 puts that on display for us. The psalmist's broad and very varied descriptions of Scripture express the sufficiency of God's Word. They express the authority of God's Word. They express the goodness in God's Word for us as we live our lives. For the people of Israel, this was an important psalm because it was seen as unpacking what their lives were to be all about. The book of Psalms opens with a description of the one who is blessed, the one who is truly happy. So if you look back at Psalm 1, I think we're going to have it projected here, the first two verses, it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Blessed, this is the Hebrew word for happy, joyful, blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He gives himself to thinking about God's Word, to living in God's Word, the law of the Lord. Psalm 119 puts on display what it looks like to live as the blessed man of Psalm 1. Commentator Derek Kidner, he writes this, he says, This giant among the Psalms shows the full flowering of the delight in the law of the Lord. The full flowering. That's what Psalm 119 is. The man who is blessed, the one who flourishes, is one who delights in the law of the Lord, who meditates on it. Psalm 1 goes on to describe that this man is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. So the one who delights in the law of the Lord, they're they're a fruit-bearing individual. They're rooted and they bear fruit. In other words, the word, the law of the Lord, it's not just knowledge to him. It's not just stuff he knows. It's action. It does something in his life. And Psalm 119 at the beginning, at the outset here, it tells us what it does in his life. It tells us that the blessed one has a blameless way. Blessed are those whose way is blameless. Psalm 119 verse 1. Now to be blameless, it doesn't mean that they're perfect, that they do no wrong. As you make your way through Psalm 119, even in our eight verses, you'll see that the psalmist is not describing perfection. What he's describing is integrity. Those who are blessed live a life marked by integrity, by consistency. There's no evident division between what they say and what they do. 
What they say always lines up with what they do. Now the psalmist then goes on to specify this blamelessness, this blameless way. He describes it at the end of verse 1 by walking in the law of the Lord. The blessed one's steps, his conduct, they're given clarity through the law of the Lord. The word shows them what it means to live a godly life. So what we see here is that, that God's word is not so much about guidance as it is about godliness, living a godly life. This idea comes up later in Psalm 119 in one of the most well-known verses in this chapter. It's verse 105. It says this, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. Now some people will read that and think that this is all about guidance. And now God's word should be able to tell me what I should do and what I should have for breakfast tomorrow morning. It's not what God's word is about. Rather, God's word, it's not so much about guidance as it is about godliness. God's word is a lamp and a light that keeps us from stumbling. It, it shows us how we are to not go astray, how we are supposed to stay on the path. The psalmist next says in verse 2 that the blessed one is one who keeps the testimonies of the Lord. The testimonies of the Lord. The word that the psalmist uses for God's word here, testimonies, it reflects the covenantal nature of God's word. So this is one of those words that we, we hold up that diamond and we turn it and we see testimonies. What, is it, what does it highlight? It highlights the covenantal nature of God's word. What do I mean by that? Well, it conveys that God is making a contract with his people. God's testimonies are God saying, I make a covenant with you and you are to acknowledge that I am God. There's something that's put on display about God's word here that we need to understand. Now, I've said it before, but it's worth repeating. God's words are two-way words. God's words are two-way words. They do, if you don't remember me saying that, it's okay. I won't hold it against you. They do two things at once. God's words, His laws, His commandments, they've got two directions to them. When we think of God's commandments, we often just tend to think of one direction, and that's telling us what to do. So God's words are saying, do this and don't do this. And when we read Psalm 119 or Psalm 1, it it can be kind of confusing because we read about him delighting in all these rules. It's like if you think of, I mean, like a kid at school running up. uh, Recently, at my son's elementary school, they were told they weren't allowed to play basketball because it got too competitive during recess. But it's like this one kid who's like all about the rules goes over to the principal and says, thank you, thank you. I like, I delight in these rules. I'm so glad you made these rules. Like that kid is just crazy. That's just weird. And so we read Psalm 119, Psalm 1, and it's like telling us how to, to do this, don't do this, and he's delighting in it. That's just, that doesn't, we don't have category for that. But God's words are two-way words. And what we are to do is not even the primary way we are to understand God's words. So God's word, they do give us God's commands, his rules. It's important, but that's not primary. Primary is God and his grace. God's words speak God's grace. That's the primary direction of God's words. John Calvin, he says it this way, 16th century reformer. Many times when we speak of the law, we suppose that there is nothing else meant but that which God commands us to do. But there is a great deal more to be considered. There is a great deal more. Let me talk a little bit about that. God's testimonies, they express his commitment to his word. They express that he is faithful to his promises. They, they express his love for his people. God's words, they're covenant words, as I've been saying. They're words that create and sustain relationship. So we saw this in the Exodus when when God tells the people of Israel, I shall be your God and you shall be my people. There is grace in that. They create and sustain relationship. 
So whenever we read about the law of the Lord, the testimonies of God, His precepts, His rules, we should be thinking in terms of covenant. These are words that are meant to establish a relationship. They're meant to sustain a relationship. God's words show us God's generosity. They show us God's grace. So when we delight in the law of the Lord, it's not only taking delight in, oh great, now I've got to obey this rule. This is what I do. That's a part of it because that's the way to the good life. But primarily it's God has created and sustained a relationship with his people. They, God's words tell us who God is and how we are to live in relationship to him. And so in God's laws, we find not just God's righteousness, but God's generosity. God's words are two-way words. Now the psalmist continues saying that the happy one, the one who is blessed, we see next at the end of verse 2, they seek him with their whole heart. God is not interested in just outward forms of obedience. The point is not to look a certain way, to do a certain thing. The point is not everybody I don't, buys Tupperware or homeschools or uh, does anything else. Everybody doesn't do the same thing. God is not calling us to seek Him with only outward forms of devotion. What God calls us to is seeking Him with our whole heart, with our affections. So in verse 1, it talks about this outward expression, we walk in the law of the Lord. Verse 2 talks about the inward direction that we're to have. We seek Him with our whole heart. Seeking God with our whole heart is not saying that we can only be blessed if we are perfect. Instead, it's opposing hypocrisy that runs rampant in our world. It's about the disposition of our hearts. Now, sometimes you'll, you'll hear people talk about how they'll identify as Christian and they'll talk about how they gave up. They used to be this way and they used to do this one thing and they've given that one thing up for God. And we can use that, giving up this one vice, and think that you know, God accepts us because we no longer do that one thing, that we've obeyed Him on this one point. But this is not what God's Word calls us to. We're to seek God in every area of our lives. Seek Him with our whole heart. To seek out that which is contrary to God and to mortify it. To renounce it. To kill it. John Owen, 17th century Puritan, he said, Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. This is what the psalmist is talking about when he says to seek Him with your whole heart. The blessed life is one that is marked both by outward and inward consistency. It's marked by a diligent pursuit of God and His ways in our walk and in our heart. Verse 3 says that the blessed is also the one who does no wrong but walks in His ways. The psalmist again stresses the reason we don't obtain happiness, we don't live the blessed life, the good life, is because we reject God's rule. We don't walk in His ways. We run to that which is not God in order to find happiness. C.S. Lewis once wrote, he said, All that we call human history, money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empire, slavery, all of human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. The psalmist of Psalm 119 is saying that happiness is found in God. These first three verses are laying that out for us. Happiness is found in seeking Him with your whole heart. Happiness is found in walking in the law of the Lord. At every turn of the phrase in these three verses, we see that the way to the good life, the way to the blessed life, is walking according to the word of the Lord. And to do otherwise is to stand in opposition to God, to have God stand against us. The psalmist presents this vision for the good life here. 
to walk in His way, to seek Him. And these three verses, they act as this introduction to Psalm 119. They're telling us about this way, the way to the good life. Now the rest of Psalm 119, it changes direction. It's no longer the writer talking to the reader. So the, the writer's been talking to the third person. Blessed are those whose way is blameless. The rest of Psalm 119, almost exclusively, is a prayer. It's the writer praying to God. So three verses, and then the whole rest, 173 verses, a prayer of longing for the way. That's your second point, longing for the way. Beginning in verse 4, extending through the rest of this chapter, we're given this prayer, this prayer of longing for the way. So there's a reality put on display in these first eight verses that's central to the Christian life. While we recognize that the good life is found in God and God alone, we also recognize that we don't have it fully realized yet. So there's this, you'll hear some people talk about the already and the not yet of the Christian life. It's as if the cross, what Jesus has accomplished for us, his death and resurrection, is D-Day. Think about World War II. D-Day happened in 1944. It was the decisive battle. And, it's, and it's, it was the decisive battle, and it was done, but the war was not over. We haven't made it yet to VE Day in 1945. We live in this in-between, where our life is lived. We live in the overlap of an earthly world and a heavenly world. It's why we are taught to pray, Thy kingdom come. It's why the Christian cry is Maranatha, which means come Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus is coming. Psalm 119, it carries this tension between the already and the not yet all the way through. Between the blessing and protection and provision, the grace that come through God's word, and this reality of life in a fallen world. We're plagued by sinful hearts. We're confronted by enemies and challenged in suffering. God's word is still true. The promises don't change, but they're not yet fully realized. So beginning in verse 4, the psalmist prays. And it's this longing prayer, prayer as he longs for the way. He goes from the truth to prayer. He goes from doctrine to prayer. And we should do the same. Let's look at these verses together. Verse 4 begins with a recognition of reality. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. It's as if the psalmist is saying, God, you are in charge, and you have commanded me to keep your word to obey your law. But it's not just obedience that the psalmist highlights. It's diligent obedience. It's the obedience of action and affection that was highlighted in the first few verses. That inward and outward consistency. The psalmist says, God, you have made it clear how I'm to live, how I'm to walk, what I'm to desire. This is God's love. This is God's grace. He recognizes it as that, God's commitment to his people. And so immediately after recognizing this reality, you've commanded your precepts to be kept diligently, he gives full throat to his longing. Look at verse 5. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. The psalmist is saying in verse 4, this is what you've commanded. And now in verse 5, he says, oh, may I do it. You've shown me what the good life looks like. May I live it. Yes. Now we need to recognize how much these, just these two verses, this whole psalm, all of God's word, flies in the face of the culture around us. The waters we swim in taste like what's been called expressive individualism. Expressive individualism. And if you, even if you've never heard that phrase, you know what it sounds like. It sounds like things like, you be you. Or be true to yourself. 
or follow your heart or find yourself. These are maxims, slogans that our culture lives by. Yuval Levin, he describes expressive individualism this way. He says, the term suggests not only a desire to pursue one's own path, but also a yearning for fulfillment through the definition and articulation of one's own identity. It, doesn't, it suggests not only a desire to pursue one's own path, but also a yearning for fulfillment through the definition and articulation of one's own identity. In other words, expressive individualism, it says that the good life is found in defining who I am. You be you. The good life is found in determining reality for me. Be true to yourself. And our culture defines this as freedom, defines this as liberty. But when we come to Psalm 119, we see the psalmist articulate the antithesis, the opposite of this worldview. It's not follow your heart. It's, oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your laws. It's not, I define reality. It's God, you are God, and you have commanded that your precepts be kept diligently. But the psalmist knows that it's not enough just to confess this truth. That's not enough. Not just knowing it. The psalmist knows that it's not enough just to know the way to walk, to know what to seek, to know where happiness is found. We've got to do it. We've got to pursue it. To be steadfast in walking in this relationship. I really like food. I like to eat. And I also enjoy cooking. Not as much as I enjoy eating. It's one thing for me to know a recipe to something that's really, really good. It's an entirely different thing for me to actually make it and eat it. Knowing God's Word is just like knowing that recipe. It doesn't really, I mean, it tells us, tells us about what's to come, but it doesn't really do anything for us. What we're called to is to make and do it. Make that food and eat it. When we come to Him, when our ways are directed to Him, when we are steadfast in following Him, verse 6 goes on to explain the effect. Look at this. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. This is our aim. When we come to God, when we follow Him, we will never be put to shame. The world around us and even our own hearts can, can be convinced that if we are able to get everything we want, this expressive individualism, if all that we define as the good life, if we get that, then we'll be happy. We'll never be put to shame. That's what the world says. It's like Paula Francis walking around our country in order to understand, to quantify the most meaningful things in life so that way we can have data to inform what we should build our society around. If this is how the world around us is built, then all the things will go well with us. We won't be put to shame. But God discloses to us the truth. And deep down we know the truth. It's like the preacher of Ecclesiastes tells us over and over and over and over again that all is, vanity. All is vanity. All is meaningless. It's just chasing after the wind. But brothers and sisters, what we're called to is to fix your eyes on the covenant words of God. God shows us incredible grace in making a way for us to be in relationship with Him. He's bridged this great chasm between a holy God and sinful humanity. And He has reconciled us to Himself through His Son. He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And what God calls us to do is to come. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your laws. For all the grace God has shown us, He calls us to seek Him, to come to Him. It's like Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, a verse you're familiar with. Come to Him, all who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He bids us to come. 
For all God has done for us, let us long to come for Him. Come to Him. Let this be our prayer. Look to all that God has done for you in bringing you into belonging in God. Fix your eyes on all that He has said. All that He has said. Remember all that He has done. And place your faith in Him. And you will not be put to shame. We sing it sometimes. The line goes, No guilt in life. No fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. As we fix our eyes on His covenant words, His words that speak grace, that show generosity, that teach us how to live, as verse 7 says, our life should be one of worship. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. Remember, this isn't just the rule book. These are God's covenant words, God's relationship-creating, sustaining words. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn these words. This is the appropriate response to learning and knowing God's word. It's praise. Our theology, truth, doctrine, shall always lead to doxology, to worship, to praise. Truth should always bring us to worship. And the truth that fuels our worship is not self-defined truth. It's not whatever we want or imagine it to be. The truth is God's, and it's God's to disclose. As verse 4 said, you have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. These are the things that God has said. We've got to receive God on God's terms, not on our terms. We don't have a pocket-sized God, or it's not a kind of however-you-want-him God. We don't have a buffet of gods, and we just kind of choose what we want, pick and choose. No. God reveals himself to us, and we take him on his terms. And what we see in God's word is both terrifying in his holiness, his wrath, but also so good and life-giving as we see his grace and his mercy. Verse 8 puts on display this longing for the way, this resolve to walk in the ways of the Lord. The psalmist says, I will keep your statutes. I know what you have said. I know to what I am called. Let me walk in this way. I set my eyes on you. And notice what, what undergirds this longing. So it's this longing to look to God, but it's also this longing for holiness as we look to Him. Longing for, to live a holy life. It's just like what Jesus teaches us to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done. We're to pray with this faith, with this resolve, with this longing. But at the same time, as we pray this prayer, we recognize who we are. We recognize that salvation belongs to the Lord. We recognize that we can't do this on our own. We cannot keep His statutes apart from Him. So the psalmist prays in verse 8, Do not utterly forsake me. I will keep your statutes. Oh, do not utterly forsake me. God is our refuge and strength. Apart from Him, we will run after the fleeting and fading things of this world. Oh Lord, forsake us not. Psalm 119, it reveals to us our desperate need for someone, for something outside of ourselves to save us. For no one is able to completely keep the law of God. I will keep your statutes, but I know I'm not able to keep your statutes. Oh Lord, do not utterly forsake me. No one is able to completely walk in his ways. No one seeks him with their whole heart. Paul uses the words of Psalm 14 and 53 when he, he says in Romans 3, 10 through 12, he says this, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. This psalm calls us 
to run to our good God because we recognize our sinfulness and we must cry, O Lord, do not utterly forsake me. We are to long for His ways, long for holiness, long to know the grace and generosity of His Word, long to know how He has called us to live. This is the longing of the Christian life because we live in the already and the not yet. We know that as we live under His rule, in the midst of the miseries of this world, that God will make us blessed. That we can live the good life. There's hope for the good life now as we look forward to eternal glory. As we look forward to everlasting bliss which has been purchased for us by Jesus Christ. When Moses is passing on leadership of Israel to Joshua in Deuteronomy, he tells the people in Deuteronomy 31 verse 6, he says this, he says, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of your enemies. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. And this is one of those realities that echo out from the story of Israel. They echo out through the rest of Scripture. And we read in Romans 8 how if God is for us, who can be against us? When God is your God and you are His child, He will never forsake you. The prayer of the psalmist is ultimately answered in Jesus Christ. For He who did not spare His own Son, how much more will He also with you graciously give Him Give us all things. When God talks about graciously giving us all things, this is not the prosperity gospel. I want to be clear here. It's not the prosperity gospel. It's not, you know, I've always wanted a bigger house. Or I've always wanted a nicer car. Or I've always wanted that better vacation. So now God can give it to me. He's given me His Son. He's going to give me all good things. No. No, the good life, the blessed life, is not found in more stuff. It's not found in relational connections, social connections. It's not found in the place you live or the places you go. The good life, the blessed life, is eternal life. Now you're probably familiar with John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His Son that whoever believes in Him shall have eternal life. What God holds out to humanity is this offer of eternal life. And it's this eternal life that makes up the good life. This is where it's at. But have you ever thought about what is eternal life? Is eternal life just living forever? Well, actually, no. Eternal life is not just living forever. Because the Bible teaches that all humanity will live forever. Everyone lives forever. We are all immortal beings. This is seen throughout Scripture. It's a distinctive part of being human, being made in the image of God. Everyone lives forever. But while we all live forever, there's a distinction between those who are with God on those who are apart from God. In Matthew 25, Jesus himself says, some will go into eternal punishment and the righteous into eternal life. Eternal punishment, eternal life. So giving us eternal life in the sense that we live forever, that's not the good life. Eternal life is that we know God, that we are with God. It's the presence of God with his people. If all men will live forever, the difference between living blessedly forever and being damned forever is your relationship with God. The good life, eternal life, is found in knowing God and being found in Him. Jesus prays this to His Father just hours before being crucified. He says this in John 17. Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify You, since You have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom You have given Him. And this is Jesus defining eternal life for us. And this is eternal life, that they know You, the only true God, 
and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus says, this is eternal life, that we know God and know Jesus Christ. This is the good life. And there's one place where we come to truly know God. There's one place where He clearly reveals Himself to us. That's in His Word. Brothers and sisters, the good life, the blessed life, is found in a person. It's found in the Word. The Word made flesh. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. The good life is beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's found in seeking Him in His Word, in delighting in the law of the Lord, in walking in His ways, in living in the way that He has set out for us, in finding Him as our God and us as His children. So brothers and sisters, may we seek Him with our whole heart. May we walk in His ways. May we know Him to be our joy, our satisfaction, the greatest treasure of our longing souls. May we long for, the, for Him and His ways. May the psalmist prayer of Psalm 119 be our prayer as a church. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Oh, Father, we look to You. We look to You, the One who sent Your Son to take our place, to die our death, who rose from the grave, defeating death, defeating the power of the evil one. And thank you that as we turn to you, as we look to you, you are faithful and just to forgive our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you that you made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might have the righteousness of God. And Lord, let us delight in your word. Let us delight in who you have revealed yourself to be through your word. And Lord, may our lives be marked with joy and gratitude as we look to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.